Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I am joined by leading psychiatrist, TEDx speaker and international best-selling author, Dr. Anders Hansen. Today, we're going to be discussing some of the reasons that even though today we are living longer and healthier lives than ever before, we are not necessarily living happier lives. We're going to talk about the connection between happiness, overall well-being, mental health and motivation. And we're also going to get into a topic that I know a lot of people are struggling with at the moment, and that is how to find focus. Our ability to focus, our energy, our mental well-being, they're all being impacted in similar ways by the modern world. But what can we do about it? Well, let's find out. Welcome to the podcast. Anders, how are you? Fine. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. As I said, there are so many... I think connections between our overall well-being, our energy, our daily energy, our motivation, our happiness, and our ability to to focus on the things that we want to do and the things we want to achieve. So I think first up, the word happiness, I, I want to talk about this. I think it's something that everybody wants. Everybody would say they want to feel happy. They want to experience happiness, but it can seem intangible or unsustainable. So my first question for you, as someone who's written an entire book about this, is how mm. how do you define happiness? Well, if you look on, if you Google the word happiness, you will get more than 900 million results. And there seems to be as many versions of, of what happiness is. Uh, many look at happiness as feeling good all the time, basically. Uh, and if you if you if you think that is happiness, then you will dis- be disappointed because that's now not how the brain works. We are not built to feel good all the time. The brain never evolved to be to be happy. It didn't evolve to be creative or intelligent. It, it evolved to uh, keep us alive, to take us to tomorrow alive. So uh, feelings of to feel good is something that should be short term. Uh, otherwise, we would not be motivated to carry on. And to not be motivated was meant death for 99% of all humans, of, of all uh, previous generations of humans. So to, to feel good uh, all the time, that's a completely unrealistic. Uh, and But I look at happiness as ha- having a good, uh, thinking that your life has a positive, a good long-term um, direction that you're doing something that contributes. And that's, that's the definition of happiness that is often used in psychiatric research. And that's, I think it's important that you have such a definition because if you think that happiness means that you will feel, feel good all the time, then you will compare yourself against a goal that is completely unrealistic. We are not built that way, uh, but we are led to believe that in advertisement and so on. I, I know that Coca-Cola had a, an ad where they said, open up to happiness or open happiness. And the message that they're sending to billions of people is that happiness is something that you choose. And if you don't feel it, then there's something wrong with you. Mm. 
And, you know, that's the problem. Uh, you compare yourself to a goal that is completely unrealistic. And I think a better advertisement would be to, to say that it's, it's okay to feel down all the time, sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's okay to feel crappy because then you com would compare yourself to a goal that is actually realistic. But such a phrase uh, would not probably not sell so many uh, soft drinks. So we will not see that. But the modern view of happiness is, in most cases, completely unrealistic. Mm. Uh, and we pay a price for that. You, you mentioned a word then that I want to pause on. You said choose. You said we're told that happiness is something that we choose. Now, I'd love you to kind of correct me, I guess, on where I'm going wrong, because I sometimes have thought that in the past. I've thought, you know, I've listened to a lot of uh, a lot of speakers, a lot of audiobooks and things on this topic. And I've kind of thought about that as about perspective and about, you know, you choose to see mm. the world in this way or you choose to focus on positive things. Or, you know, as you said, if you're feeling crappy, if you're feeling down, we all have challenges in life. Maybe your job is stressful. Maybe your kids aren't behaving. Maybe you have an ill parent and sometimes we, we can feel like, you know what, I just need to be more grateful or I just need to be more optimistic and I have to choose happiness. So yeah, am I getting that wrong in terms of trying to cultivate a mindset that is, that is optimistic when maybe that's not helpful? I, I mean, of, of course that can, that can be important. Uh, no question about that, but it's not that simple really. It goes back to what I said about the brain it, it never evolved to be happy or smart. It evolved to take us to tomorrow alive. And the most important thing I never learned about the brain in med school was that it has not changed during the last 10,000 years. We are still adapted to a life as hunters and gatherers. And for 99.9% .9 of all the time of, on the planet for humanity, half of all humans died before they became teenagers. And they did not die from what we die to from today, such as cancer and cardiovascular disease. They died from infections, bleeding, murder, and accidents, starvation. Those were the things that killed people. And we are the descendants of the ones who did not die from that, of course, because we have behind us an unbroken line of survivors. And that means that we have in us, in our brains, and in our bodies, defense mechanisms against the things that killed us in the past. And one such defense mechanism is to see the world as dangerous, because this was a terribly dangerous world that, that, that shaped us. And to see danger everywhere helped you survive. It helped you to prepare for the worst. To see danger everywhere today, that's what we call anxiety. Mm. Uh, and from this perspective, it's not surprising that people have anxiety. What is surprising is that there are some people who don't have anxiety. And maybe they should be diagnosed. <laughs> um, and, when, and when I say that to my patients, some of them say that I really get it now. I am not damaged. I am not broken. Uh, I'm not damaged goods, so to speak. So if you contain the way you view uh, anxiety or stress is very important because you can, it, it can make you seem like a broken person, damaged, or it could be seen as something completely normal. And that's why it's so important to learn about the brain if you want to understand your mental life. Uh, and you will also understand that things like, oh, be, think positively and be calm and happy and so on, such cliches, you know, they don't work most of the time because evolution builds much stronger mechanisms uh, than 
than uh, ones that can be just fooled around by some simple cliches. Mm. It isn't that simple. So uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't cultivate a positive view. You should, of course, but you should also learn about our biology and learn that the things that we call anxiety and depressive episodes are defense mechanisms that shows that we are functioning. They don't show that we are broken. Mm. If you have, if they cause you a lot of problems, you should seek help because seeking help is a sign of of strength. Uh, and you don't say to a di diabetic, for instance, pull up your blood sugar. <laughs> you just don't do that. So you can't say to a person who's suffering from a depression, pull yourself up or think positive things or whatever. It's not that simple. Mm. You so, so we have to break the stigma and realize that we are not built to feel good all the time. Yeah, and I think that is incredibly powerful when you describe it like that, comparing it to a, a, a physical health complaint. Uh, so much of mental health and mental illness, as you described, is is spoken about in that way, which makes us think that we have the the capabilities to to change it, and that we we have to do it ourselves, and it's it's, it's about us, and we have to fix it, and that I think is 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 very problematic. So. For anyone listening in there, maybe thinking, okay, I know a little bit about mental health and mental illness, and they try to do a routine and daily habits and things to support that. So for example, getting adequate sleep or, you know, exercising regularly or, you know, listening to music that they like, but we all have ups and downs. And, you know, I recently, I recently heard somebody describing, I thought it was brilliant. They talked about the vibration frequency and you know how you might've seen online. Sometimes people have this phrase, good vibes only. Have you seen that before? No, I haven't. Oh, well, I've seen this quite a lot. Sometimes I think it was an Instagram thing. People would say, oh, good vibes only. And it means like, you know, we're only going to mm. allow good energy, you know, happy, happy people, like good vibes, no stress, no drama. Um, so the sentiment, I think, is nice. But essentially what he said was, if you think about a vibration, you know, with music or anything, you can't have only the up vibration. If something goes up, down, up, down, up, down, that's what vibration is. That's what energy is, that's what frequency is. So this idea that we could have good vibes only, we can only have up in life, you know, it's not possible. We have to have up, no. we have to have down. But also sometimes people feel as though they're stuck in the down, you know, they might feel like every single day they are stuck, they're unhappy. So if someone is experiencing that right now and they feel stuck, they feel like they're stuck in the down, do you have any, I suppose, where should people start with something actionable that they could do maybe today, maybe a daily practice to start to shift out of that feeling of feeling stuck in the down? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, and I mean, if, if you are stuck uh, feeling down, that's a depression um, or a, could be a mild depression. It could be a severe depression, but you should seek help for it. That's my first advice. And there are different forms of help. Cognitive therapy is very good. We know that exercise is incredibly important for mood regulation, uh, but it's very difficult to exercise if you feel down, of course. Uh, and and we also know that um, we know that antidepressant medication works. Uh, so, so so my main advice there is is to seek help. But the point that you make is so important that we can't feel good all the time because the brain wants to motivate us to do th to do things. And why is this? Well, we are still adapted to life like hunters and gatherers. And it, let's assume that one of our ancestors was climbing a tree to pick some bananas, and then she managed to do that and get those, and she ate the bananas. She felt happy. She felt good. Now, how long could she do feel good? Well, not too long, because if she felt good for two months, then she will starve to death. 
you would not continue striving for, for any new bananas. So positive feelings should, by definition, be short-term to motivate us because that's uh, our feelings are motivations. That's the brain's tools for motivating us to do things that mm -hmm. kept us alive and helped us reproduce in a setting that we used to live, not in today's world. Um, so it's so the and, and the consequence of this is that the brain wants to really remain in balance. If you push the dopamine system, this the reward system in the brain. Too, uh, too much, it will adapt to that and it will stop producing its own dopamine and the dopamine receptors that the dopamine plugs into in the brain and there will be fewer of them. So the brain realizes that oh, I, I get all this dopamine from the outside by my smartphone or by uh, alcohol or cocaine or whatever and then it stops producing its own and it starts to expect this high level and it, would, it doesn't get that, everything feels incredibly boring. So the consequence of this is what was great yesterday is something that you expect today and something that will be not enough tomorrow. So that's another reason why you should perhaps be a bit moderate on how much pleasure you seek. Because if you seek it too much, too intensely, it will backfire. All hedonism will unfortunately lead to anhedonia. Well, this is the, the next thing really that I wanted to discuss with you because you mentioned a few times, you know, the hunter-gatherer, but we're no longer living in that world. We live in the modern world. And so, as you just described, some of the things that we can enjoy, abundance, abundance of food, alcohol. If we're, you know, if we're fortunate, many people in the Western world, they have abundance of food, alcohol, sugar, maybe drugs, and also entertainment, you, you know, smartphones, social media, all these things. It's almost, I could list a hundred things, I suppose, which are hyper-stimulating, enjoyable, fun, and relatively easy. They don't require much effort. You know, as you said, I'm not having to climb the tree to get the berry, to get the sugar. I can just open the fridge or, you know, order delivery. So the world has become easier. We can get the dopamine, we can feel good. And yet, as we said at the start, many people are not feeling good. So you kind of touched on it there that I guess, are we just so overstimulated with abundance that actually we've just become I guess, numb to feeling that these things are actually incredible. Because, you know, if you think about some of the things I just listed, even my own, mm. like I'm 35 years old. If I think back to being a teenager, you know, my life was so different to a teenager's life today. You know, my to my son's life, for example. You know, I might have had five TV shows. They have 500. They can flick, 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 flick to choose. There's all of these things that have changed to, yeah, make the world like hyper stimulating. So other than just saying, okay, I'm going to, throw my phone away I'm going to delete social media I'm going to what can we actually do about it to try to regulate this hyper stimulating world and try and get some of that feeling back that that's a great question and I if you look at candy for instance there's nothing in nature that is so sweet as candy that contains so many calories as candy so cal candy is basically super fruits it's better than anything in nature. And when you eat candy, your brain is re registering that this is awesome. This is survival. This is protecting me against the future starvation because half of all humans died before they became teenagers. So we are wired to seek that. And then we continue to eat and eat and eat. And there's no, uh, and since we could never get enough calories, there's no ending to how much food that we want. 
and therefore we all realize that we can't have candy all around all the time because we will eat it. It's just not possible. And I think that you should see some of our digital tools the same way. They are so rewarding. You know, they provide us with so much dopamine, so much kicks. And why is that? Well, that's because a number of companies is making money out of every second that we spent on social media. Uh, so they are a form of super stimuli, so in the same ways that that candy is super stimuli, and and if we just com- bombard ourselves with that passively, um, we will feel empty uh, I- I- eventually, and that's what many so many of us are are experiencing today. And I also think that we feel a bit guilty about it because we think. I have everything. Why am I still not feeling good? Uh, which is completely natural to feel. And I have patients during COVID and they said that it was good actually to to be isolated for a period, at least in the beginning, because they were not faced with so much um, things that they had to turn down. Because to sort of say no, to say no to something that requires mental strength and you that that's an exhaustible resource. You don't have as much. So, so you know, to walk around and say, I will not pick up my phone. I will not eat candy. I will not do, do not this. That's difficult. Mm. Um, and, and how should this be implemented in your daily life? I mean, that's, that's very difficult. I, I try to keep distance from my digital tools a couple of hours a day. I don't have them around when I work. I don't have them around when I read. I don't have them around when I meet my friends and so on. Uh, and I, I exercise every day because I know that's incredibly important for my well-being. Uh, so, but I think all of your viewers must find ways which they could build this knowledge into their own lives because it's difficult to give sort of general answers to this. Mm. Yeah, I think. But, but one, one, but, but but one, one must be aware that one of nature's cruelest hoax is to make us believe that if we just follow our instincts, if we just do what feels right in the moment, then we will be happy. And unfortunately, that is not the case. The instincts that makes us do what we want in the moment, they helped us survive in a world where there was lots of danger and little resources. But those instincts does, does not make us happy in a world of overabundance which and a world which is very safe. Yeah, it's a constant challenge, isn't it? The word you said, guilty, and I was nodding my head because I think so many times if you do feel you know, stressed out, you feel down, you might feel, as you say, anxious, depressed. You, I certainly in, my, in the past have felt this rush of guilt because you think, oh my goodness, yeah, you have everything. Yeah. How can you feel, how can you feel, you know, you kind of think, stop feeling sorry for yourself and, you know, be grateful. And I think the word grateful and gratitude, which is something that is so important. And we know how yeah. important gratitude is for our overall well-being, for our physical, mental health, to really experience gratitude is is so, so important. But I think we've heard this word and we've told people for so long, be more grateful, write a gratitude list, gratitude this, gratitude that, that it's almost become meaningless. And you just feel like, yeah, this guilt that I should be grateful every day for every single thing. I can't have Mm. a problem or an issue. And it's so complex to constantly try to navigate that this is a real problem for me today. And this is valid. This is how I feel versus oh my goodness, you're a spoiled brat. You have everything. Look at the world around you. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. And then we feel guilty for not feeling good. And and uh, uh, the, the, I, I, I completely agree. I see that all the time. And I, I feel it myself all, all the time. And that, when you see the war in Ukraine and so on, and you see the terrible 
uh, disasters that are being played out right now, and then you think, why am I not the happiest person in the world? I have everything, and mm. I and 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 but so so it's it, these these things are very very difficult. But uh, what helped me was to look at myself from the perspective of the brain and seeing the brain as an organ who wants to keep me alive in a context that I don't live in. Mm. And it wants me to follow instinct and eat everything and, and, you know, read everything and smoke everything and, and check everything online and so on. And if I follow these instincts, I will, everything will just feel empty and I will, I will start to expect to have that level of, of, um, of um, uh, stimulation. And that's not possible to keep on going like that. Yeah. And another effect of this hyper-stimulated world is, of course, distraction. And our attention is being taken left, right and centre all day, every day, if we allow it to be, by our devices, by so many things, notifications, entertainment, all these things. So I know that you've written a new book, The Attention Fix, which is out in June, which aims to help you find focus in a world that wants to distract you. Now, I recently did an event a few weeks ago with Google and it was a media event and I was talking about well-being trends and looking at their most searched terms on Google in the last 12 months. And one of the terms, which is how to focus. So how can I focus? How can I improve my focus? Mm. That term in, in terms of Google search has increased by 330% in the last 12 months. So clearly this oh, is, really? a, yeah, clearly this is an issue for lots of people that they are wanting to find a way to focus and finding it very difficult. So firstly, I guess over to you, as I said, you've written a book about this. What is it about our immediate environment that is for making it so difficult for us to focus and most importantly what can we do about it right um the most valuable thing in today's society is not pounds or euros or dollars or bitcoins it's human attention it's your and mine attention and there's a number of companies who are fighting for our attention and they have gotten better and better and better at getting it and i'm talking about social media of course they are now the, the the biggest and most powerful companies actually in human history and that's because they have managed to grab our attention and how did they do that well they present stuff on on um on our screens and that in a very very addictive way and one way to look at this is from the dopamine system in the brain the dopamine system is not uh there to give us pleasure or not only that's that, that's too simplified it's there to tell us what to focus on so if i'm hungry and i see food dopamine levels uh, increases in my brain because it's telling me to focus on the food get the food now there's been experiments made when you have rats uh they first hear a tone and that tone is followed by some fruit juice and then you repeat this a couple of times. So the animal associate the tone with the juice. And then you see that dopamine rises in the brain when they hear the tone. It tells them to pay attention. There's something coming now. Now, if you have the tone sometimes followed by juice, not every time, but sometimes in a random way, dopamine rises even more. So the brain loves maybe. Mm. And why is that? That's very strange, actually. And the the probable reason is that most uh, rewards in nature are by definition stochastic you do not know whether there will be trees in the uh, whether there will be fruit in the trees that you climb you do not know whether your hunt will be successful and so on 
So therefore, the brain rewards uncertainty to motivate us finding things that are uncertain. And this is something that you can see in all animals, including humans. And this is why we gamble. We know that we lose if we gamble, but we we uh, we uh, but we still do that, and it causes huge problems to some people. And th- that's because this is an Achilles heel in our psychology that has been exploited by casinos uh, and gambling companies. And that same mechanism has been exploited by Facebook and Instagram and so on. Because when you post something on on Facebook and people click on a like and give it a thumbs up. You don't get to see your friends' likes as they are being clicked. You, Facebook waits and distributes them in a way to make you come back to see if there's maybe one more like. Uh, maybe someone has clicked on, on my picture. And they have done so in a way that, make, that makes us keep, come back all the time. And, this is, and that's just one of many tricks that they have used to making these tools incredibly addictive. And they're just getting better and better and better at that for every year. And that's why we spend more and more and more time on our digital devices. And of course, that's not just bad. We could use this stuff to connect to one another, which is great. But most of the time, we just scroll endlessly because we have become so addicted to this. Mm. Uh, And this is why our attention is so bad. Someone is trying to get our attention all the time. And you, you, we must be aware that attention is really fragile. Uh, our ancestors, as I said, half of them died before they became teenagers, and we are still adapted to that life. And they, you know, they had to constantly scan their surroundings. Is there something there, 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 there? You have to be aware of danger, and so, so your focus is incredibly. F- uh, um, fragile and you must protect it and that's why i never keep the phone in the same room when i work i have also i always have it outside because it no i know it it grabs my attention and there has been experiments made where you have students doing tests for 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 the ability to focus and test for memory and half of them leave their phone outside the test room and the other ones bring it in the ones who bring it in don't pick up their phones they have it in their pocket but they still perform worse than the ones who leave it outside. And the reason is probably that the, the, the phone is giving us so much rewards, so the brain will have to think, I should not pick up my phone, I should not pick up my phone, I should not pick up my phone. And then you get slightly distracted by that. It takes some of your mental bandwidth, so to speak. Yeah, this is super fascinating especially the part about the brain loves maybe it's so interesting because it feels counterintuitive you know we, we hear it we is, hear yeah. about uncertainty yeah. and people say oh, i don't like uncertainty i like certainty but actually we do like uncertainty and you know you gave the the, uh, the description then around gambling but even in dating you know i have friends who you know it's that We've all heard it, you know, treat him mean, keep him keen. It's those kind of the guys that are uncertain about, oh, does he like me? Is he going to reply? Those are the guys that they, you know, want to hear from more than the guys that are certain that say, yes, I I like you. So I think this may, the brain loves maybe. I I think that was really, really powerful hearing that. And then I think continuing on, going back to this point about focus. So that good example of people in a test and you know it's there so again there's the maybe maybe I should check it oh I can't I can't it's kind of just there niggling the back of your mind but what about so focus is one thing just your immediate attention what you're focused on right now but what about other cognitive functions so things like memory recall concentration problem solving deep thinking surely if our attention is constantly context switching all the time surely that must be impacting our 
yeah, the other parts of cognitive function too. I mean, obviously I don't have any da- yeah. data points on this, but do you think that our brains are, you know, overall, are we, we're not going to be getting smarter, surely? Like as a, as a society, our brains must be suffering. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that is the case. And, and if, if you would sit back and just do nothing, you would just let your thought wander, you know, what did I do yesterday? What am I going to do tomorrow or during vacation or whatever? Your mind just wanders. If you look at what's happening in the brain, you see that there's, an, there's a network in the brain, a number of different areas that become active, and that's called the default mode network. And then when you start doing something like typing an email or checking your Facebook feed or whatever, then another network starts, which is called the executive network. And your brain goes back and forth from these two networks, default mode networks and executive network. And why is default mode network important? Well, that's because it makes, then the brain makes connections between things that were not so um, apparent. So it's, it's very important for creativity, for making those connections that you didn't thought about in the first place. And you need to, to, to sort of rest and be a bit bored to do that. And I think it's boredom, you know, it creates a space where you also start looking at the, the long-term direction in your life. Am I doing the right things? Am I hanging out with the right people and so on and so forth? You start asking those questions. And I think, I, I think actually boredom is a bit underrated. And when we try to swipe away all the boredom that we can, which we do today, we lose something important on the way. You know, we just constantly go for the next impulse and impulse and impulse. And then we lose this creativity. And then we also lose the, the ability to see our the direction of our lives. Mm. Yeah, on a personal level, I can I can really it's very clear and I guess also from uh, a business level so for big organizations you know often I go and talk to organizations about well-being and about innovation and about human performance and something that I thought about when you said the word creativity is I'm sure most organizations whether that's in the tech industry whether it's a small startup whether it's a whatever industry I'm sure most organizations want their employees to be creative and to be innovative because all companies want growth. We know that in the modern world, they all want growth. And what do we need to have growth? We need innovation. We need new products. We need creativity. So I'm sure all big companies want their employees to be those things. But as you just described, we need space to be able to have new ideas to create but our lives and our work schedules are often so busy people tell me you know I have meetings 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 emails 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 I'm I'm working so much that actually to keep up with my workload there's no space to sit and think and be creative and be innovative so how can we find that balance well that's that's a great point but we must make that space for ourselves because that's where the most valuable things comes comes from um I could just go to myself when I write books and I write the script for my TV programs. You know, the best ideas comes when my mind is wandering or when I'm standing in the shower or something. Like, that. ah, now I get it. And most of these ideas is crap or crap, but sometimes it's something good. And if I just let myself being swept away by all these distractions, I would never have gotten those um, those ideas and those insights. So we must make room for that. And I, and I think if you can't make room for it in, at your work, then be very cautious about how much you use digital media in your private life. So from a pure, and I'm not talking about mental health, that's a different issue, but from a pure perspective of productivity, Mm. uh, I think we should cultivate boredom, actually. 
Yes, yeah, bit, yeah, I agree. I think as a parent as well, I try to do that. We went on a trip last year, me and my, my eldest son. And when you're in the airport, you know, you might have a long time to wait and then you're going to be on the flight and you're going to have a long flight. And so there were certain moments where, of course, you want to read a book or you might want to, you know, watch a movie on the flight. But in some of those transitional waiting times, I actually thought, you know what, it's okay to be bored. You know, you can look yeah. out the window, you can watch people in the airport. And I know some parents probably think, oh my goodness, no way because the children are going to be but actually for us as adults but also for young people the airport you know is huge you think but Heathrow Airport in London is absolutely huge there are so many people so many things to see so many things actually when you just say okay we're not going to read a book we're not going to look at a phone we're just going to sit here and you know have a sandwich you actually start to oh look at that guy's t-shirt oh he likes wrestling I like W you know my son was telling me these things because you're actually just bored and there's nothing else to do and it is you can you can I'm not trying to say oh it's super fun to be bored but I agree I think when you make these when you choose boredom you actually start to yeah fight it's not it's not as bad as you think it's going to be yeah and it doesn't have to be hours of course it could be short periods but to really experience boredom for what it is and to make those connections because you see the guy in that shirt and he reminded me of that and that reminded me of this thing and ah, now I know I I had an idea about this book and then all of a sudden something pops up and as I said most of it is garbage but sometimes it's really important Uh, and and when I, I tell this to kids that they should perhaps try to you know stay off their screens um I don't tell them that you know do that because it's good for your health or it's good for your creativity because you know that that's not going to work i tell it in the following way that tech companies they are stealing your time they don't care about you they don't care if you're less creative they don't care if you're sad or depressed or anxious or if they if your sleep is bad they just want your time um and and that um that is that often works better you know there's there's been tests done on how you should talk to children and teenagers about smoking and if you say that it's very dangerous to smoke you risk lung cancer and emphysema and so on that uh, unfortunately doesn't work because when you're in that part of your life you don't care about diseases decades in the future but if you tell kids that Smoke, com- smoke tobacco companies they don't care about you they don't care if you die they just go- want to exploit you they just want to make you addicted to make money from you then you could sort of awaken this rebel inside us who says i'm not going to be exploited by them and i think you can look at digital media the same way mm-hmm. these tech companies they don't care about you they don't care about you they just say they want to connect but that's just words they just want your time because it's money for them and and you know so maybe that's a way to sort of harness your own inner rebel um to, and use it against uh, this um this fight for your attention yeah, I like that. And speaking of tech, I have to ask you, I have to ask you, in the last few weeks, months, years, the the increase in popularity, conversation around AI and new AI models like ChatGPT, it's just become, you know, I feel like the last few weeks and months, it's just everybody is talking about it. And, and we're kind of having these debates about, you know, what it's going to mean for the future, how it's going to in, impact different industries. And so I had to ask you how you think that some of these AI tools could potentially impact our attention, our happiness, our well-being. Do we think that these tools, like everything, 
is it two sides to the coin and we can use some of these tools in powerful ways to make us all ha- happier and healthier? Or do you think that when it comes to yeah memory and, and attention, we're just going to forget about it now because we're going to outsource that to an AI model? Yeah, those, those are great questions. And, and I, there's no doubt that these extremely powerful technologies can do a lot of good. I've seen that in medical research. They could solve a lot of serious medical problems. So they could do tremendous... Um, they, they could do wonderful things, but at the same time, it's possible that they could be misused to spread in misinformation in a way that we have never experienced before. Because AI cannot just spread in for, for misinformation, it could actually create such information and it could tailor make it so that it seems like it's coming from someone who really knows you and it can sort of give us counter arguments uh, in a way that a human can, or even better than a human. So we will feel that it, it's possible that we will be drowned by all this disinformation about this uh, manipulation of us. That's a short-term risk, and I think a medium-term risk is that the job market will be completely changed, where a lot of jobs will be dis- disappear. Some new jobs will appear, no doubt, but I don't think it will be as many. Um, and it will probably be very difficult if, uh, to, to get those jobs, and those jobs will definitely need attention, that's for sure. Mm. Uh, and of course, there is there may be an existential risk, which has been put forward by many experts. And um, I think personally that if the, the if the ones like George Hinton, who has worked his entire life with AI, uh, if he says this is really going too fast, this is dangerous, then I think we should listen to people like him. They don't say that to get attention. Um, they say it because they really mean it. And if uh, if a technician at the power plant says that there's a problem here, I'm worried, then I don't say, what does that guy know about power plants? I take it seriously. So when the founders of AI says this is really dangerous, then I I, I don't have any reason to, to not be worried. I, mm. But 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 it's, it's definitely a double-sided coin. And, um, and I think the big irony is that attention is what will probably be the most important thing uh, for the job market in the future. And at the same time, attention is the thing that is being eroded the most in, in modern digital life. Yeah, very powerful stuff. Very powerful indeed. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Now, for the last part of the show, Anders, I always ask every guest about their power hour. This is the Power Hour podcast. And for me, that is the first hour of every single day. So I encourage people to think about what do they do with that first hour? What things do they engage in? What things don't they engage in? And and what typically do they choose to do to start the day in the best way possible? So I guess on a personal note, I would love to know if you could share with our listeners, what do you do with the first hour of your day? I almost uh, always go to the same cafe to have breakfast. It's just around the corner where I live. Um, and I, I, um, 
I work uh, with something creative that first hour because I have realized that I get my best ideas during that time. And I don't know why that is. It seems like my inner critic is still sleeping. <laughs> so so I'm not, maybe I'm not censoring myself so much or so. So I, I really want to use that hour because I know that's when I'm doing my most creative work. Uh, but I, I would never exercise in the morning. I'm too tired for that. Um, so so uh, yeah, that, that that's how I spend that hour. It sounds great going to the same cafe and I guess with that because I when I'm on holiday sometimes we'll do that you go to the same cafe and after four or five days you know you know the person they say hi they might know your coffee order so I think it's also a nice uh, like having that repetition of connection and I think my final question to you would be about connection if we've talked a lot about social media we've talked about technology and we've talked about how our attention is being challenged but I think another challenge for a lot of people with these technologies is is the lack of connection we were connected to more people it's it seems yeah. I mean you know you might have thousands of people you've seen connected to but we know that many young people many adults as well are feeling very disconnected feeling lonely so what would your advice be I suppose when it comes to human connection in the modern world well um for the brain connection is not just something that is interesting it's survival to get we you would not survive if you were isolated during 99.0% of our time on the planet isolation meant death in a group you were safe alone you would you would die so to be part of a group was as important as having food for the brain and when you are in a state of isolation your stress level is actually increased a bit. And we know now that long-term isolation is dangerous for us. It's actually, some researchers think it's as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. But, 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 but by that, it's not a day of isolation. It's long, long periods of isolation. And the probable reason is that uh, isolation means that you are in a state of, of low-level stress all the time. So to be part of a group was incredibly important uh, for, for all humans. And therefore, we have this need to read one another. Uh, we are very good at that and, and to connect to one another. And I think that there's a purely physical dimension to that need. Uh, we met face, th those incredible strong social needs were created in a world where we met face to face and they cannot be replaced by a screen. They can't, just can't. Some of it can, but not all of it. And we all felt that during COVID. Um, that that uh, that replacing our our whole lives with the screens just didn't work. We, we felt empty and 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 lonely. And I think that we should also be aware of the consequences of isolation when we look at social media, because we are always asking ourselves: Do I belong to the group? Am I good enough to be part of the group? And during almost all of human history, we ask that question in a group of perhaps 100 to 150 individuals. And of those, perhaps 20, 30, 40 were about the same age as you were and in some way competitors to you. And, to, and today we ask that question and compare ourselves to the whole world. And there's always someone that is better looking, smarter, richer, more successful, and what have you. So there's no roof to the social comparison, so to speak. And that makes us feel like we don't belong to the group. We feel that we are being kicked out. And the brain registers that as lethal danger. So um, be very cautious of how much you expose yourself 
to the facades of uh, of other people's lives on social media. Because for every picture you see, there's 100 pictures that was deleted. But so you only get to see this, you know, very, very carefully uh, orchestrated version of other people's lives that aren't their lives. It's mm-hmm. just a picture of it. And you, and as an adult, you know that I, that's not what reality is. But when you're a teenager, you feel worthless. Mm-hmm. You feel like you don't belong. So that's why I always tell my uh, patients and, and other people that be, be cautious on how much of this you expose yourself to because you will not die lonely because you spend five hours per day on Facebook, but the pain will be the same. Gosh, yeah. And it's it's so interesting what you said about, you know, don't be deceived almost by what you see because even myself, you know, I use social media and I post things on Instagram and on stories and I'm a runner and sometimes I run in the mornings probably three or four days a week. I have never run you know, a hundred days in a row, I run three or four times a week. But because I share that, oh, I'm doing my morning run, I'm doing my morning run, people probably don't notice the days when they don't see that. But then sometimes I meet people and they say to me, oh, you run every single day, you know, don't you ever take a day off? And I say to them, I don't run every day, maybe three times this week. But they're like, no, no, but I see you running every day. And I'm thinking, no, you see the you know, you don't, you don't, basically, they don't notice the off day when they didn't see me run, but because of the familiarity, the consistent, oh, she runs every single day. And I just always think that's quite, an, it's a small thing, a silly thing, but it again is an example of when you see someone else's, oh, they're always traveling or they always look great or they're always yeah. doing, 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 doing. And you probably think, actually, you don't see all the in between moments, you just see the, the on, you don't see the other bits. Exactly. And, and uh, so you compare your life to a, a completely bizarre uh, version of other people's lives. And if that wasn't enough, you have Instagram celebrities who get paid by showing their perfect life. I mean, th- when I grew up, uh, I, compared, I, I, I compared myself to the guys in my class and perhaps the guys in the class above and below. That's pretty much it. I didn't compare myself to Gene Simmons or Harrison Ford. They were unreachable idols, you know. And now kids compare themselves to the whole world and, and to everyone. And they that and, and the and that creates a feeling that, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I don't I don't belong in the group. That's the algorithm that's being computed in your brain deep down and saying you don't belong and you are in lethal danger. And that's why you feel so bad from it. So that's a good reason, as I said, to limit the exposure mm. of this facade from other people. Well, I hope if you've been listening to this conversation, I hope that it's going to encourage you to consider how your attention is being stolen from you, to consider how much time and energy and effort you you put into what you choose to do, what you choose to, yeah, spend your time looking at, listening to, who you're with. And I really hope that it will encourage you to, yeah, I suppose think about your own daily habits around focus and around attention. And Dr. Anders' book, The Attention Fix, is out in June. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, then do dive in. It's, you know, if, you, if this has just scratched the surface for you, then dive into his work. It is absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And as always, I'll be back next week with another episode. Hold up. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.